You're listening to Campus Review Radio. Professor Bauman, I want to start out with a question many Australians need more advice on. We know that controlled fire burning can help in the spread of some fires, but what about those of the mega fire quality with their own weather systems as such? And also, is there a trade-off between people's safety and the carbon emissions are released from controlled burning? Well, that's right. You're framing some of the really big questions in uh, applied fire science that we're still struggling to get um, good answers to. And the recent uh, fire event that has occurred in eastern Australia particularly is is a absolute treasure trove uh, uh, of data and opportunities to tease apart these factors. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's start right at the very beginning and try to understand what uh, fire managers are doing when they're applying fire in the landscape, what they think they're doing and what they are doing. And that's part of the research challenge, trying to work out if what they think they're doing is actually achieving, uh, is being achieved by by what they're doing. So the idea, you know, the the standard premise is that you can't control um, the weather, so, but you can control fuel and you can partly control ignitions and so fire management concerning the ignitions you have total fire band days but you are going to get lightning and you are going to get uh, accidents and you are going to get um, bad actors causing ignitions so um, you know the the fatalistic view is there are going to be ignitions and so they're going to be fires in the landscape you can't control the weather so you can control the fuel so the idea is that if you can reduce the fuel, that's why sometimes prescribed burning or hazard reduction burning is called fuel reduction burning. You can reduce fuel loads. The question is, well, what does that achieve? And there's a fork in the road. One optimistic view is that it creates a fire barrier. So it actually stops the fires spreading across the landscape. Uh, probably a more realistic view, uh, and some people will assert the former view, mm-hmm. but probably a more realistic view is that it changes the behaviour of the fire, particularly the intensity of the fire, making the fire more amenable to control, to suppression, and making the fire behaviour less extreme increasing the odds of uh, asset survival and and to a certain degree human survival because the intensity of the fire is lower because the intensity of the fire is lower then uh, it means that you know suppression activities can can take place because after a certain point the fire intensity of, of the fire intensity sort of scale, um, all known technologies cease to be of any relevance. And so the idea of fuel management is to drive down the intensity and to give fire managers more options and more capacity for control. So that's the, that's the logic, mm-hmm. what 
fuel reduction burning is about. Unfortunately, it gets very complicated very quickly. Um, so on the one side, does it stop fires? You know, the, the idea that you can use fuel reduction burning at, to create barriers. Um, freshly burnt areas are barriers, but you, you only have to think about it for a minute and it's not possible to imagine, um, you know, having, with one exception, which I'd come to, having barriers pretty well everywhere. So the way managers would do it is they would burn an area, reduce the fuel, but in all likelihood, a wildfire will encounter that treated area, as it's called, but it won't be freshly burnt. It might have been recently burnt. In other words, the fuel has been reduced. I understand. So the barrier argument um, is a very special case, mm -hmm. um, and it's most people don't promote the idea that fuel reduction burning is creating barriers. But just because of the practicality, if you think about it, how would you be able to generate that much freshly burnt country to to uh, fend off uh, a wildfire. You know, it's, it boggles your mind. You know, you'd have to have, like, how could you do that in, in the, you know, the season leading up to the fire season? How could you treat such a huge amount of area to create freshly burnt fire breaks? Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. So, so it's sort of not, it's not practical, but people can confuse that. They think that fuel reduction burning is creating fire breaks. It does create fire breaks. It can create fire breaks. It's just the scaling issue is is mind-boggling. With the one exception, which you'll have to remind me to come to, mm -hmm. um, which which is where a lot of this confused thinking uh, originates back to. The second point of the fuel reduction, that it's absolutely true that when a fire uh, encounters an area of uh, reduced fuel, the behaviour of the fire is, is likely to change because there's less fuel to burn. But there are two really important caveats um, that are misunderstood. And the first uh, caveat is the live fuels. So if you talk about the world, the landscape as being a landscape of fuel, you're looking at the landscape in a very narrow way. The landscape is actually complicated. It's got terrain and it's got vegetation. Um, it's got watercourses. It's got all sorts of complexities. Mm -hmm. And out of that means that not everywhere it's not just a frictionless surface, an idealised landscape. It's just one bed of fuel which you can manipulate. There's lots of complexity and lots of differences. And so what ends up happening is that the, the models that are often used are discounting that complexity, particularly the live fuel, the vegetation. And so... One of the, the sort of complex um, com complexities is, well, what about if you start 
uh, you know, burning an area to reduce its fuel, you will reduce its, its, you know, particularly in a dry sclerophyll forest, a dry eucalypt forest, you will reduce the amount of litter, but you may actually promote more flammable, short-lived plants. So you may okay. actually perversely increase the fuel, but but the fuel is a different type, different. It's it's living material, but under extreme fire weather conditions, that fuel becomes available shrubs um, because and we're still trying to discover this of how they're switching of live fuel. The great frontier in research frontier in in fuels is the live fuel. At what point does a living plant become fuel? Yeah. And at what point does a living plant become a barrier to fire? That's in interesting. In terms of the spectrum of dryness. I mean, you could only, you know, you could think about taking a, um, you know, blowtorch into uh, the bush in the middle of winter and applying it to shrubs um, and and eucalypt trees, canopies, and so on, saplings. And you could you could imagine that yeah, it would burn, but it would take some time. You'd have to put a lot of energy into the live fuel because there's a lot of water. It's 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 basically little the leaves are little bags of water, so they're energy sinks. Yeah. Yep. But if you in the middle of summer took a blowtorch to a shrub, uh you know, it's pretty obvious it's going to burst into flames. And presumably that is the effect of the difference in the, the moisture content in the live fuel. So so one of the problems of fuel reduction burning is that it can reduce fuel, but it might actually perversely create fuel. But the creation of fuel may be contingent on the weather conditions. So there's a contingency and there's an uncertainty that we don't really understand. And that uh, then leads to the next problem, the next sort of broader contingency, that what's been observed is, so there's a debate about fuel management. So does fuel management, fuel reduction work or not work? You know, there's a debate about that. You'd say, well, how's that possible that it could be ambiguous, mm. that one study could show that it works, but another study could show that it doesn't work. Why would that be so? What's the explanation for that? And the, the explanation for that is the contingency of weather conditions. Because under extreme weather conditions, you know, the catastrophic weather conditions that we're all learning about, there's, you know, phenomenally high temperatures and strong winds and, and antecedent drought, what ends up happening is pretty well everything is burning. Everything is becoming available to burn. Mm -hmm. You know, that's why I can race across, you know, heavily grazed paddocks because the organic matter in on the surface layer of the soil can burn. Uh, the fire is, you know, being driven by, you know, literally billions of embers, which are just exploring the landscape to find carbon based fuels to burn it'll just burn ev absolutely everything and so in those conditions the benefit of fuel reduction seems to evaporate 
because you don't get a perfect reduction of fuel. That's not what fuel reduction, it's a reduction, it's not an elimination. It's always going to be, um, unless you're, you know, I, I guess you could imagine an atomic bomb on vegetation which vaporizes everything and fuses the soil into glass. Yeah. Um, you know, you, that would probably, you know, be an example of the complete and utter removal of all fuel. But of course, even, uh, well, well, obviously, some of the very, very high severity fires are pretty well atomic bombs, but they're lo- very localized. And that's where that habitat complexity comes in. Even areas that are burned under very, very extreme conditions, um, they are localized. So we, this is one of the misnomers that have occurred with this fire season is that people have looked at the perimeter of these you know, jaw-dropping perimeters and extrapolated in their mind that the entire area inside that perimeter of that fire is like being hit by an atomic bomb. And even, say, in the south coast of New South Wales, where there were these, you know, truly mind-bending fires, actually the landscape, there's large areas of the landscape that were more moderately or lightly burnt. Um, and so, you know, it's it's way more complicated. So it all it, what, what I'm really trying to say is that with fuel reduction burning, there's always going to be a residual amount of fuel which under extreme conditions can burn. And even fires of the most extreme sort, which we've seen in southeastern Australia, the pyrocumulonimbus, which couple to the stratosphere and are, you know, really honorary atomic bombs and, and the intensity of the ground surface, they can shatter rocks and, and you know, do remarkable things to soil um, minerals and so on. The, the you know, uh, you know um, mind-bending temperatures, but they are actually localised elements in larger fires. And so the bad news is that even those fire grounds will have those large perimeters will, even though they've been burnt by wildfire, which is way more intense than a fuel reduction burn, will become available for burning again quite soon. So that explains the reason why there's a debate about prescribed burning, because it's contingent on the sort of fire mm-hmm. conditions, and it's contingent on the fire weather conditions. In other words, a moderate prescribed burn, which is controllable, will leave a fair bit of fuel behind. Under moderate fire conditions, that will result in a moderate fire, but under catastrophic fire conditions, that could sustain a catastrophic fire. And then, as I said, the problem is that you may be creating more fuel types by frequent hazard reduction burning so it's a it's a very it's a very complex um and nuanced um topic and a lot of people just don't understand that they're seeing it in a very sort of simplistic view that that fire managers you know turn fuel on turn fuel off that if you turn fuel off you create this giant fire break that 
that stops a wildfire. And it's like, no, fire managers can dial down fuel mm-hmm. and that adjustment of the fuel load can, in some cases, if it's very recent, create a barrier, and in other cases can be completely irrelevant because of the extreme fire weather conditions that the fire, in a sense, can't see the difference in fuel because everything has become available because of the extreme conditions, localised conditions. And that, you know, and those localised, those extreme fires may actually achieve, you know, the absolute removal of every single bit of fuel possible, which would be, therefore be, you know, the world's largest fire break. But the vegetation will recover very quickly anyway. Um, so even the most intensely burnt areas can become available to be reburned. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it's a catch-up game, like, really, isn't it? Yeah. So, so it's sort of, it's it's not, um, it's it's this the fact that it's a yo-yo. You know, the fuel is is going away from you, but it's coming back to you. You know, that's it's a pulse, and what the fire managers are trying to do is use that pulse to create a variation in the landscape to create changes in fire behaviour. But it's all about, you know, the, the word they use is residual risk. You cannot, it's physically impossible to remove the risk of bushfire. Um, what you can do is you can try to use fire skillfully to reduce risk, but that risk reduction is contingent on the weather conditions and under certain weather conditions. That's why we were seeing farmlands burning. You know, there were no eucalypt trees. It was just farmland burning because there was a, you know, there were these ember storms that were just exploring the landscape to find combustible fuel. They were just, the fire was, was, you know, in this very rapid growth phase. It was just sending out these particles um you know searching out anything that t- available to burn to burn and that's why ember storms are so scary for houses because they actually search the nooks and crannies into the houses to find ways to burn the house down um and that that's really you know where the the state of the science is so what we're hoping to be doing the new south wales fires is start to drill into this question to understand, well, what were the benefits of fuel reduction in changing fire severity, which is a measure of intensity. The severity is like how much the crown is scorched. And, and can we see these relationships where, you know, if you burn moderately, do you get a benefit when the wildfire comes, if you burn severely, because sometimes prescribed burns are more intense than they want. How does that play out into the subsequent wildfire? And all the time you're having to control for the vegetation type and control for the weather conditions, because the weather conditions start, um, they're they're defining really what the fire can do, the the intensity of the fire. the, The weather conditions are you know, an incredibly important um, uh, override. And that's what a lot of people don't seem to understand, that fuel reduction burning has 
limits because once you achieve these extreme weather conditions, as far as we can see, it doesn't really matter anymore about what's down there. Well, David, that brings me to the second point about um, what we can do to control the weather. Now, there has been some debate about this, I guess, trade-off with um, controlled fire burning and um, the carbon emissions that can be released from that. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Yeah, so it's a hugely uh, complicated and and um, mind-boggling question. And I just want to jump back to that point about fire breaks um, because in certain systems which are burnt very, very frequently, namely tropical savannas, then you can see the effect of prescribed burning changing fire behaviour by creating fire breaks because in the one season, you're burning early in the season to deny a fire late in the season. Yep, that's how it works. So the idea is you apply fire early, you create burnt areas, you've burnt up the fuel, which is grass, and that creates a barrier for a fire later in the year. So that's where most of the carbon abatement programs have been focused. And that the idea there is that the fires in the early part of the dry season are less intense, they are less efficient at burning particularly the woody fuels, so they're emitting less uh, greenhouse gases. So if the idea is, uh, and I would argue that it's not a completely perfect or proven idea, is that the idea is that if you can do this sort of fire management, you can end up with this um, benefit or reduction of emissions. With the eucalypt forests, in southern Australia, it's much more complicated for the very reason I've explained. We're not the, the, the objective is not to create fire breaks like you can do in the tropical savannas, but it's actually to reduce fuel loads. So then the question is, and, and the greenhouse gas emissions, it's also scales to smoke emissions, particulates which affect human health, is that how does this work? If you do a lot of prescribed burning... You're getting lots of packets of low smoke emissions, low greenhouse gas emissions, but mm-hmm. lots of them versus not many, but very extreme wildfires that put out, you know, a gigantic pulse of smoke and a gigantic pulse of greenhouse gas emissions. And, you know, the question is, can you see a benefit from those two strategies. And as far as I know, nobody's really certain of this because the trade-offs um, are not really well understood. That if, if you'd say, oh, well, you do lots and lots of prescribed burning, you're going to reduce a damaging wildfire. Therefore, you're going to have less carbon emissions. But you go, hang on. But you've got to add up all of the emissions from Mm. your prescribed burning. Does that actually end up being about equal to the amount of smoke and the amount of greenhouse gas emissions you're going to get from a wildfire? And the other complexity with this is that, again, one of the 
intellectual traps of thinking about that trade-off is that you're seeing, you're representing the wildfire as the most extreme element, tile of, the, of a wildfire fireground. And in fact, what it turns out is that if you look at the fire severity maps, you know, they're absolutely huge areas that got burnt in New South Wales, uh, particularly. But the thing about them is a lot of them were really just gigantic prescribed burns. That's all, they were quite low intensity. But much of the time, they were just very big. Mm. So, you know, don't, you know, that then it becomes more complicated to be thinking about the wildfire you can't just represent it as the maximum amount of greenhouse gas emissions and the maximum amount of smoke because there's a lot of variability. There are days where they're emitting, you know, let's say 10 times more than a prescribed burn per unit area, but there are many, many days in the life of wildfire which are emitting, which are actually identical to prescribed fires. They're doing exactly what a prescribed fire is doing. So the question is, how do you work out that trade-off and, and add up over the course of 10 years or 20 years the balance between the greenhouse gas emissions and then you've also got to factor in tree mortality and tree recovery? And, you know, nobody knows the answer to this. Um, that's it's just like, you know, we're... It's a it's a really interesting research problem. Yeah, definitely. It it's it's it starts doing your head in. It's so complicated <laughs> because you've got these trade offs of adding up over you know the the area of the, of, of being treated, the frequency of being treated, the intensity of the fires, the emissions that are being treated, and you've got to add them all up and reconcile it. And you know, there's one argument. Um, and I think Owen Price, University of Wollongong, saying that when you actually look at it overall, it basically comes out to be about the same. So That's it's just a sort of a research challenge to know that is there really a net benefit in prescribed burning in terms of reducing carbon emissions, or is it basically you, you basic? And the other thing that's sitting in the background is that if you don't burn areas then the fuel, there is decomposition taking place. So, you know, you've got to factor that in as well. 